We're going to be looking at Colossians 1, uh, verse 15. That's page 1715. If you want to turn to page 1715, we're going to look at one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible today. And actually, as you're going there, I want to tell you about the first time that I heard this passage. I'd become a Christian. Can you guys hear me? Am I, is there anything I can do? No? Okay. Um, yeah, so I'd become a Christian about a couple of years previous, maybe sorry, about nine months previously to hearing this for the first time. I was being discipled by a guy called Rich. He and I used to meet up, read the Bible every week. And um, I don't, just let me know if there's anything I need to do. Keep going, okay, cool. Um, yeah, so we were meeting up every week, looking at the Bible, and we went and did a, uh, had a retreat day uh, together. So we um, went to rural Oxfordshire and um, spent the day reading the Bible, praying, meeting with God. And over uh, Diet Coke in a, in a pub, I remember he read these verses that I'm about to read to you. And I remember being absolutely struck by the beautiful vision of Christ that is contained within these verses. I was, it made me want to worship Christ so much more. I remember thinking, wow, this is so beautiful. And so I want to read to you um, this passage uh, from verse 15 of chapter 1. It said, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we open your word, would you enthrall us? Would you open our eyes to your majesty and your glory? Would you speak through me as we seek to understand more of who you are, Lord Jesus? Or would you help us to exalt you? Would you help us to, to see the reality of who you are? Amen. Now, this passage is something of a mountaintop moment in Scripture, where, the, where Paul has, has taken the, a kind of opportunity just to zoom out and give us a wide-angle lens, a, a really just create such a beautiful vision of who Christ is for us. In fact, I feel a bit like an amateur pianist trying to play a symphony orchestral piece, almost like we're not going to be able to do justice to it this afternoon, but... I think we can pull out a few key threads. And really what we see is, is uh, Paul is giving us this authentic vision of Christ as part of this first, um, first chapter, really, which Paul is building, really setting out the essential building blocks of the Christian faith before he then goes on to address some of the false teaching that is creeping into the Colossian church. And there's no more essential building block than the question of who is Christ. I think it's important to, for us to look at this for a few reasons. First of all, this really deals with the question of the identity of Christ. And really, Christianity hangs and falls on this question. If Christ is the Son of God, if he is God in the flesh, then you have no option but to worship him. If he isn't, 
then those of us who are Christians, which is the majority of us here, should really give up this for a start. And we've got much better things to do with our Sundays, much better things to do with our whole lives if he isn't who he said he is. So there's no more important question than who is Jesus. And actually, even as Christians, sometimes we can build something of a caricature of Christ, maybe depending on our, what really attracts us, what, what's our kind of pet hobby horse almost. So you know, maybe you're a bit of a social justice warrior, and so you're really attracted to the way that Jesus is um, particularly merciful to the outsider. Maybe you're someone who's particularly anti-religious, and so you think, what I'm really attracted to is the way Jesus challenges the religious authorities, the way he overturns the temples, uh, overturns the tables in the temple. And actually, it's important that we try and cut away any bias that we have and try and say, well, what's the authentic Christ? Who is the, the real Christ? Of course, this passage really is dealing with the question of who God is. And actually, your understanding of who God is is actually much more significant than you realize. This is no abstract theology. A.W. Tozer, Christian writer and preacher, said this, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What he's saying is, if you are someone who perhaps you think of God as angry, as mean and capricious, actually it'll probably come out in your character. You'll probably start to be quite mean. If you're someone who focuses on the love of God, if you see the, uh, the love of God so clearly, that actually that's the central truth of the universe, that God loved us so much that he was willing to come and die for us, actually that will start to, to filter out into your character. Actually that will change you as a person and you'll become more loving. So this isn't abstract theology. This is absolutely essential and has profound implications for our lives. Actually, if you really understand the claims that Paul's making here, you'll see that this is actually a very divisive passage. I suspect that as you read this, as you really get into this, you'll do one of two things. Either you'll be drawn towards Christ and you'll say, there's nothing I can do except worship him. I've got no other option but to worship him. Or you'll be repelled from Christ. You say, actually, I can't believe anybody worships him after reading the claims that Paul is making about him. And if this is true, then you'll see that it has huge claims on your life. This is not the kind of passage you can walk away feeling kind of neutral about. You can't say, oh, you know, he's the visible image of the invisible God. Eh, doesn't really matter. Like, it demands a response. Whether that's, this is ridiculous or this is absolutely true and I must give my life to follow it. But we need to understand it. We need to get inside it. It's very easy when you see a beautiful mountaintop scene just to allow the beauty to wash over you. But actually, if you really want to enjoy the beauty, you need to do more than that. Uh, my grandmother's house in Italy is uh, in the mountains and near Parma. It's about an hour up from, up from the uh, city of Parma. And you, you spend about an hour getting there. And when you arrive at my grandmother's house, you get out of the car, you see this absolutely stunning view. You can see beautiful rolling hills. You can see a beautiful valley, river running down the valley. You can see old Italian farmhouses. You're absolutely struck by it. But actually, if you want to enjoy it, you need to do more than that. You need to walk it. Actually, most people, when they get that, get there, the first thing you want to do is explore it. You want to go up that hill and you want to say, well, what's the view like from over there? Or you want to go and inspect that farmhouse up close and say, well, what does it really look like? You want to get inside the scene. It's not enough just to observe it. You need to walk it. You need to Uh, understand what's really going on. And so in this Paul's mountaintop view of Christ, I want to do the same. I want to walk it with you this afternoon. I want to really get inside it. And I want to draw out really three key themes that Paul has, um, really three key building blocks that Paul gives us 
about the identity of Christ in this passage. And I think if you understand these three building blocks, then you'll have an authentic vision of Christ. So the first one I want to show you is Jesus is divine. Jesus is divine. Really, the clearest theme that comes out of these, pa- uh, these verses, these six short verses, is that Jesus is divine. You can see it right there in verse 15 when he describes him as the image of the invisible God. Else, in other translations, he describes as the visible image of the invisible God. Now, maybe you may think that, well, that sounds like he's a little bit like a kind of visual projection of God. He's not actually God. Actually, if I was to show you a, a photo of myself, and if I was to show you a mirror of myself, if I was to show you uh, something like that, a mirror image of myself, you'd say, that's me. That's identical to me. So when, when Paul's saying he's the image of the invisible God, he's saying that's, Christ, uh, that's God. That when you see Christ, you see God. Actually, he's saying, really, if you want to see God, you need to look at Christ. That Christ has made God visible. Actually, that means that when you see Christ's ministry in the Gospels, we can see what God is like. In John 14, Philip asks Jesus to see the Father. What's Christ's response? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is an incredible claim of divinity. So when you see Christ's incredible mercy, think about the way he uh, interacts with Zacchaeus, who is an immoral scoundrel. He's a tax collector. He's a collaborator with the Roman Empire. And he's been, uh, you know, no doubt skimming off the top, making himself wealthy at the expense of his own uh, countrymen. And and he's become an outcast because of this immoral behavior. But what's Jesus' response to him? He invites himself over to him. He has dinner with him. Amongst the whole crowd, he chooses to have dinner with Zacchaeus. So as we see Christ's incredible mercy towards Zacchaeus, if we see the very different way he treats Zacchaeus than everybody else, actually we get a glimpse of God's incredible mercy. When we see in Christ's incredible power, we see the way he has power over the wind and the waves, the way he has power over, um, over, even over death. Actually, we have a picture of the all-powerful nature of God. When we see Christ... We get to see God, and we get to see what God is like. Of course, this speaks to the generations who've sought to reason, sought to philosophize, sought to speculate their way to God. Throughout the generations, philosophers have sought to um, prove the existence of God. You know, different arguments, ontological argument, cosmological argument, devi- uh, d- the argument from design. Some of these arguments are helpful. They challenge maybe some of the kind of natural assumptions of our age that belief in God is a kind of irrational belief. But actually, when you look into these arguments, you'll see they're never sufficient on their own to prove that God exists. Blaise Pascal, a mathematician and philosopher, said, the supreme achievement of reason is to bring us to see that there is a limit to reason. The supreme achievement of reason is to show us that reason is not enough. That reason in and of itself will not lead us to the conclusion that God exists. And the revelation of God in Christ speaks much louder and clearer than any logical argument ever could. He's not an idea. The answer to the question of whether God exists has come to us in a person. He's definitively and clearly answered that question. And we have the living witness of his life, his death, and his resurrection, as recorded in these eyewitness, or these accounts based on eyewitness, a testimony. It also speaks to the settled agnosticism of our generation. Most people in our generation would say something like, you know, maybe even I'd like to know if there was a God. I'd I'd really, um, it's maybe even an important question, but it's impossible to know the answer to that question because it's a a spiritual question. It deals with a 
question of immaterial nature. It's impossible to know whether or not God exists. So we kind of settle ourselves in a kind of um, settled agnosticism. But actually, Christ's answer to that is, no, you can know. Christ has made God visible. God has entered into our physical world and shown himself. So actually, if you're, you're not a Christian, you say, well, God has never shown, never made himself clear. Actually, I don't think Christ leaves us with that option. Actually, the person of Christ has answered that question and has now then sent his disciples, sent us, his people, on a mission to go and spread the news of his existence, of who he is to the whole world. So if you're a Christian here, I think what that means is that evangelism is actually a lot simpler than you realize. Many of you who are Christians, um, when you think about evangelism, you're maybe a little bit nervous. Because perhaps you think, yeah, I'd love my friends to know Christ. I'd love to help my family uh, encounter and follow Christ. But actually, I just don't know enough. You know, I don't have all the answers. I'm not familiar with all the arguments for the existence of God. Actually, what this would say is we don't need to know the minutiae of the cosmological argument or understand the different logical steps of the ontological argument. Actually, what we need to do is present Christ to people, presenting the person of Jesus. Evangelism is a lot simpler than you realize. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul is describing bringing Jesus to the Corinthians. And he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is Paul, the master evangelist. He's not trying to bring some sort of intellectual treatise. He's not trying to prove the existence of God to them. He's simply presenting the truth of Jesus, his death, and presumably his resurrection. So if you want to help someone find faith, it may be as simple as just opening the Gospels with them, just reading the Gospels, looking at uh, the story, the accounts of Jesus' life, and saying, well, who does Jesus claim to be? What do you make of the claims that he makes about himself? Actually, when you meet with Jesus, you're meeting with God. The other, um, the other, really, the other key way that I think that Paul shows us that Jesus is divine is the way he describes Jesus as the creator of all things. Verse 16, he says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now we'll come back to verse 15. I know it says uh, he's the firstborn of all creation. We might be a little bit confused by that. We'll come back and explain that. But actually, Paul is very clear in this passage that Christ is the creator. Rather than being made... Actually, Christ is the one who's been doing the making. In fact, the, world, his, the very existence of the world depends on him, even to this very day. Now, to make a claim that he's creator is ultimately to definitively argue that Christ is divine. Paul, who's you know, obviously a deeply learned Jewish scholar, would know that, that the um, Old Testament makes it absolutely clear that the only creator is God himself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the way the Old Testament starts. In fact, the whole way through the Old Testament, God is unequivocal that he alone is the creator. In Isaiah 44, he says this, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. So for Christ to be located as the creator is to say he is that Lord. It's not a contradiction. It's actually to associate and say, this is describing Christ. Now, of course, this is an incredible claim. Saying Christ is not some sort of divine hero, 
Not some kind of Herculean figure who's maybe a little bit like God. Actually, he's God in the flesh. He's fully God and fully man. That each part of the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are all individually God. And this is a fantastic claim. This is a kind of claim that, again, you can't be neutral about. You know, even if you're not a Christian here, you have to ask yourself, how did so quickly so many people become convinced that this man was God? You may have heard it before, the, um, the idea. If you were to think of who were the most uh, 10 most prominent people in the world, who were those five most prominent people in the world, Jesus would almost certainly be among them. Maybe even the top three, possibly the first, purely just from a historical um, perspective. Equally, if you were to put on, on, the, on the other side uh, 10, of the, 10 of the most prominent people who claim to be God, you see that Christ is the only one in both lists. People who typically claim to be God are not received well. Most of the time when people claim to be God, people think they're madmen. It's a ridiculous claim. Yet Christ is the only one on both lists. And what's more, so quickly this idea spread around the Roman Empire. So many quickly, so many people are willing to believe and trust that this man was God in the flesh. So if you're not a Christian, you have to ask at least why. The greatness of the claim demands a response. You cannot just leave it. You've got to respond to the claim. This is also an exclusive claim. It contradicts almost every other account of Christ, of who he is. It contradicts the Muslim account, which would say he's just a prophet, or contradicts the Jehovah's Witness idea, which would say he's uh, the first, cre- first part of God's creation. It contradicts the, the uh, pantheistic idea that we're all divine. It says, no, actually, only Christ is divine, not any, not any of the cre- other created order. Not any of the created order. It's also an ownership claim. To, when you create something, it's yours. Think about an artist who makes a sculpture, who draws a painting. Who owns that after they make it? It's them. Of course, they can choose to sell it. But to make something, is to ma- is, is for, it means it is yours. So that means Christ is our owner. In Psalm 100, uh, the psalmist follows the same logic. It says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Because the Lord has made us, we are his. We are owned by him. He is our master. And so really what this means, I think, then, is that you need to have a bigger Jesus. Actually, often as Christians, we think of Jesus as our friend, as our brother. Of course, those are fantastic truths that that resonate deeply with our hearts, that Jesus would call us friend, that he would include us, as, our, as, as his brother, or rather that he would be our brother. Of course, some of you would be his sister. Um, but actually, we've domesticated Jesus. Actually, we've, we sometimes have forgotten that he's our sovereign Lord, that he's the Lion of Judah, that he's the creator of all things, that he was there before creation began. Listen to this incredible um, passage describing Jesus in Revelation. It says, the hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When you hear that vision of the exalted Christ, of the resurrected Christ, of the Christ who we will meet face to face 
one day, when we glimpse Christ's majesty and glory, the right response to Christ is one of awe. The right response is one of worship. When we understand Christ's majesty, the cross becomes even more shocking, becomes even more of a gift when you realize that this is the God who made the people who mocked him and killed him and allowed himself to be humbled and humiliated even to the point of death. Actually, then suddenly the cross becomes an even more shocking and incredible gift to us. And actually, the the idea that he would call us friend and brother becomes even sweeter because when we know the majesty of Christ. So the natural response, the only response to this truth is worship. Second pillar that Paul gives us. Jesus is our ultimate authority. Jesus is our ultimate authority. Actually, in our anti-authoritarian age, where we not particularly keen of the idea of authority, it's very easy to underplay Christ's authority. Actually, this theme comes through so clearly in this passage. Paul is saying, look, this is all of creation is Christ, and therefore he is authority over all of it. He's Lord over all of it. He's rightfully in charge. He's rightfully the head of all things. You can see this in a few ways. You can see when he's described as the firstborn of all creation. Now, some of you might think, well, does that mean it's saying that Christ is created? Perhaps it's easy to get confused. We know that in verse 16, it's it's not saying that. It says, actually, everything was made through him. So by definition, he was not made. He alone has not been made. So he's not created. It's not talking about him being created. Actually, to be described as firstborn of all creation is really a description of rank or authority. In fact, the NIV translates it as firstborn over all creation. The firstborn title is really something that in the Old Testament describes uh, authority and preeminence. Uh, The nation of Israel is described as God's firstborn son. What he's saying is you're preeminent. um, You have a special place um, to to me. In Psalm 89, uh, there's a prophetic a description of a king who will come. And it says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Another translation puts it as the mightiest king of all the earth, or mightiest king on earth. So when he's described as the firstborn, he's saying he's the highest authority over all creation. And actually you can see that in the next verse when he, when he describes the, how he's um, higher than all these other authorities and rulers because he made them. And they're made by him and for him. So he's Lord over them. Jesus is higher than any other uh, human being who would claim authority. So he's firstborn over the physical creation, but he's also firstborn over the new creation. If those first couple of verses, 15 to 17, describe Christ's lordship over the earth, the the following verses, verse 18 to 20, verse 18 to 19, um, describe Christ's lordship over the new creation. See, he's described as firstborn from among the dead. Firstborn from the dead. Now, of course, we know that Christ has been resurrected. And when he was resurrected, he ushered in the new creation order. Actually, what it means is that Christ is the very source. Uh, He's the very beginning of this new creation order that includes all of us who worship and believe in Christ. He's the beginning. He's the reason. He's the very reason for anybody who believes in Christ that, of course, 
He has been the one to work in our hearts. He is the one who's ushered in this new age. And he is head over this new age. It means that Christ will reign in the new heavens and the new earth. But it's not just the reality to come. Christ is also Lord of his church. Verse 18, he's described as head of the body, the church. Now, to be the head, it speaks of leadership. The body can't survive without the head. The head directs the body. Think of the body without the head. It's dead. So it means, actually, that if the church detaches itself from Christ, actually, it's dead. It will die. So Paul is saying that Christ is the Lord of all creation, the Lord of the new creation and the Lord of his church. And this poem really is a declaration of Christ's authority. And when you understand that about Christ, you'll see this authority manifest itself all the way through the Gospels. Think about when Christ uh, taught the Sermon on the Mount. This was the reaction of the crowd. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. He wasn't relying on the text and saying, well, this is what the text says, which is what I'm doing this afternoon. Actually, he was speaking the very words of God himself, because he's God in the flesh. So he taught with a different type of authority. Think about when Jesus was confronted by the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5. The man has been tormented by evil spirits, and they're, they're almost possessing him. They're speaking through him. They say, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Even the demons recognize Christ's authority. Actually, he alone has the ability to command them to come out of the man, and he does. And the man is transformed. Think about Jesus' authority over sickness and death. Think about when he goes to meet, see Lazarus. And Lazarus has been dead in the tomb for four days. Christ is able to command life. Lazarus is resurrected. He has the authority over life and death. No human being has ever been able to stop death. We've tried for thousands of years to try and hold off and prevent death. No human being has any power over death except Christ, who, of course, is fully God and fully man. Christ even has authority over nature. Think about in Mark's gospel when Christ is on the boat with his disciples and a storm comes up and the disciples are panicking and Jesus is asleep in the boat and they go over to him and they say, "Um, don't you care that we're perishing? They're worried they're going to die. And he speaks to the winds and the sea, says, peace, be still. And there's a great calm. The storm stops in a moment. And I love the last line that describes the disciples' response. It says, who then is this? This is what they're saying to each other. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? No secular ruler can command power over nature. You've heard of the apocryphal tale of King Canute who stood at the English shore and told the waves to go back. Actually, it's, the reality is slightly different. Actually, he was a Christian and he was standing at the shore of the uh, According to one 12th century account, he was standing at the shore saying, um, possibly sitting on his throne at the shore saying, look, I have no power over the waves. Actually, my secular, my authority doesn't extend to power over nature. He was drawing a distinction between him and Christ. What does this mean? Well, it means that the gospel is fundamentally a lordship claim. Sometimes our gospel account goes something like this. Jesus died for you. He bore the punishment for your sins so that you can be forgiven by God. That's all true, fantastic truth. But actually to end there is just part of the story. Actually, you've been forgiven, you've been reconciled to become the people of God who recognize God's authority, and that starts to be 
um, tangibly clear in your life. By the grace of God, you're able to obey the authority of Christ in your life. Actually, whenever the gospel has been preached, it has always included this conviction that Christ is Lord. Think about the word gospel. In Greek, it's euangelion. Now, before the Bible, uh, before the New Testament, that word was already being used in the Roman Empire. And what it means in the Roman Empire, it was part of um, an imperial announcement. It was used at the beginning of an imperial announcement. And um, by the time of Christ, Caesar was almost seen as a kind of semi-divine figure. And so uh, this word euangelion would be used really as an announcement of Caesar's authority. Really, it means it carries all the connotations that Caesar is Lord. So when, so when you, if you're a Roman citizen and you hear the euangelion, you hear the gospel, you think what it's saying is Caesar is Lord. That he's, uh, there's an inscription which uses that, which uh, describes Augustus as the saviour and even the son of God. So now you can hear how subversive the gospel claim is. Every time the Christians are proclaiming the gospel, they are directly contradicting the received wisdom of the Roman Empire. Implicit in their gospel is that Caesar is not Lord. Only Christ is Lord. Actually, you, saw this, you see this in um, the account of Polycarp, one of the, the first Christian martyrs. In just about the second century, um, he gets hauled before, uh, I think it's Caesar, or he's about to be killed. He's literally about to be killed. And they, t- they tell him, look, it's, it's not so, they ask him, isn't it, uh, it's not very difficult just to say Caesar is Lord. Why don't you just swear by Caesar and admit Caesar is Lord? But of course, Polycarp can't do it. He's, he's martyred for believing in Christ because he believes a gospel that Christ is Lord, which is directly contradictory to the gospel of the Roman Empire. So every time this gospel is proclaimed, really what it's saying is Christ alone is our authority. So what that means is you cannot claim that Christ is your saviour, but not your Lord. To believe in Christ is to recognize him for who he is, Lord of all creation. If you believe that, it will shape your life. And actually, if it's never changed your life, if it's never had any impact on your life, you have to ask yourself, do I really believe that Christ is Lord? So what does this mean then in the Christian life today? Oh, actually, sorry, before I come to that, I want to speak to you if you're not a Christian. And you might say, well, this actually sounds very unattractive. This idea, this authority claim that Christ is making, or Paul is making about Christ in this passage, is actually deeply unattractive. Because isn't this the kind of authority claim of a dictator? Isn't this the kind of authority claim of Stalin or Kim Jong-il? I don't, never remember how to say his name. Idi Amin, all these different autocrats. These, this kind of claim that they're making, that when, they would, that when they would demand absolute obedience. Isn't it this kind of claim that's led for thousands of years for rulers to oppress their people. Isn't this kind of claim deeply dangerous? In fact, we live in something of an anti-authoritarian age where we almost resent any kind of idea that there'd be authority over our lives. We want to be the authority of our lives, perhaps most prominently because we've, we've, we've seen leaders fail. We've seen abuse crises, expense crises, all sorts of different failures of leadership. And so it ends up saying, well, really, the only people that we can trust is ourselves. So then you might say, well, how can Christians claim this announcement of Christ's authority is good news? Well, actually, the answer is because he's a very different type of Lord. That all these men, all these dictators asserted their power through force. Christ exercises his authority through love. Napoleon, who um, we're not sure of his religious tendencies, um, what his religious beliefs were, but he said this about Christ. 
He says, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did the rest of our creation, what did we rest the creations of our genius? What did, we, what did our empires depend on? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. And of course, what he doesn't say is, as each, men of, each one of these men died, their empires crumbled. No one followed Napoleon after he died. But Jesus' empire of love, based on his authority, but built on his love, lasts through the centuries to this very day. So Christ's kingdom is built on love. His leadership comes out of his love for those he leads. And this means he leads in a very different sort of way to the dictators of, of um, Napoleon or Charlemagne or whoever. In Mark chapter 10, he says, he's describing really what, what New Testament leadership looks like to his disciples. And he says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The very mark that Christ's leadership is so different to the world is his willingness to lay down his life for those, those who are under his authority. This is totally opposite to any kind of model of secular leadership that we've seen throughout the ages. Christ's leadership is characterized by this sacrificial love. His authority is not operating for his benefit, but operating for the benefit of those he leads. What, is, what I'm saying really is, ironically, although you might think that you'd be happier being in control of your own life, Actually, ironically, Christ promises that as you give over, as you recognize his authority, actually, ironically, you become much more satisfied. Chuck Colson, who was um, a Republican staffer, in fact, he was described as the evil genius of the Nixon administration in the 1970s. He's the, the, he was in the very center of the Watergate scandal that led to Nixon's impeachment. And um, he eventually went to prison on, um, on count charges of obstruction to justice. Um, and he, he became a Christian, and he describes the difference um, between really the secular leadership that he observed in his time in the White House versus Christ's leadership. He says this, Nothing distinguishes the kingdoms of man from the kingdom of God more than their diametrically opposed views of the exercise of power. One seeks to control people, the other to serve people. One promotes self, the other prostrates self. One seeks prestige and position, the other lifts up the lowly and the despised. What we're really saying is that Christ's leadership is the only leadership that can be trusted. That Christ is the, Christ's authority is good news because of who he is and because of, of how he leads out of love. But if you've recognized his authority, then what does it mean for your life? What it means is that a Christian can be defined really as a man or woman under authority. We tend to underplay this. But actually, and as much as we have a relationship with Christ, which is a wonderful thing, it's not a relationship of equals. We're like the soldier in the gospel who describes himself, describes what it means to be under authority. He says, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And to that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. What the soldier's really describing is unquestioning obedience. There's a recognition of a higher authority that demands a response. It's very easy to be in church each week, even to be challenged by you know, from what comes through from the pulpit on a Sunday. It's quite another thing to each day say to Christ, I submit to your lordship. 
You're in control of my life. I want to be obedient to you. Will you help me to be obedient to you? It's quite another thing to make that kind of daily dying to self and decision to be obedient to Christ. Actually, I think this kind of authority will challenge the other authorities in your life. Many of you are working, and you may well be asked by your boss from time to time to do things that, that actually you would say, this, this, is not, um, this would mean I couldn't be obedient to Christ. Maybe your boss would ask you to lie. I've worked in business in London for the last eight, nine years, and happened to me a number of times. And you say, well, what do I do in that situation when my boss asks me to lie? You might think, well, okay, he's my boss. I should do it. But actually, what you really should be thinking is, no, I'm afraid I can't do that because I've got a higher authority in my life. I report to a higher authority that is above you. And actually, that means I can't do what you're asking me to do. I'm I'm marching to the, the beat of a different drummer, so to speak. There's a higher authority above you, above your boss, above any authorities in your life. There's a higher authority that at times you have to choose to obey against the authorities uh, against what the authorities are asking you to do. Maybe you go out, out uh, with your friends for, and you've had a few drinks and you've decided to stop because you don't want to get drunk. But your friend's like, no, it's my birthday. Come on, get wasted. It's fun. And you're like, actually, no, I, are they a higher authority? I can't, I can't give in to what you're asking me to do. So Christ being the authority of your life will mean at times that you have to say no to other authorities. But I think Christ being the authority of your life also means that you have to think about who you're listening to. To listen to something, to, and, and then to do it, to act on what that person's saying, actually in a way is to give them authority to speak into your life. And to see Christ as the ultimate authority in your life means allowing his voice to speak louder than any other. I can think of one example in my own life. Um, become a Christian, and a couple of years later I decided to work, I felt called to work for this Christian charity, making disciples, working with students, helping them to follow Jesus. And my parents aren't Christians, and it was shortly after I graduated from university, and it was just a total anathema to them. They just couldn't understand. They thought it was like, they said, it's a waste of your talent, you know, can't believe you're, 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 you know, you're not going to have a career, you're going to go and work for this uh, Christian charity, and uh, you wasted the money we spent on you, all that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I was really committed to what I was doing with this Christian charity. I really believed it was God's calling for me, but Sometimes after spending time with my parents, it just started to affect how I felt about it. Actually, I started to almost imbibe something of their attitude towards my job. And so I think, yeah, actually, you know what? I am probably, I'm not really doing what I should be doing. I'm maybe even wasting my life. And actually, I realized then that I was allowing their voice to speak louder than God's voice. In some way, I was, I was allowing it to influence me. And I think this happens to all, sort, all of the time, that we allow different voices to, to speak into our lives and to subtly undermine God's truth. So actually what I decided was, you know, I love them, I respect them, I want to honor them, I I spent time with them. But I subtly decided that I wouldn't allow their attitude to influence how I thought about my job. I I had to choose consciously to not allow their uh, their views to influence my view. Now I'm not saying, of course, um, that we never listen and engage with culture. That we never listen to the different views of people who aren't Christians. Actually, I would argue that's a fantastic thing to do, and it's really important that we engage with the world. We want to be in the world, but not of it. The difference is that we engage critically. We think about what we're hearing, and that we we always uh, refer it back to the ultimate authority in our lives. We always put it through a filter of Christ and say, well, actually, does this, is this consistent with what, with what I've come to believe in Christ? Or actually, is this subtly undermining what I believe? Or even is maybe 
actually, is the, re the reason this person is saying this is because they're coming from radically different worldview and because they've come from different assumptions. So we have to be willing to question and filter what we're hearing in, in culture and from our friends and everything else. So the authority claim that Jesus is making will have profound implications, whether it be um, at times having to choose to say no to other authorities or whether it means saying to, that Jesus is the ultimate authority and he speaks louder than any other. But finally, I want to bring you to the third pillar that Paul is talking about Christ's identity. Jesus is the reason for our existence. Jesus is the reason for our existence. See, it's very easy as you read this passage to, to think it's all about Christ. But actually, in there, very subtly, almost, almost, you'd almost miss it in verse 16. It said, all things were created through him and for him. And really, that's a claim about you, that you were created for him. Now, actually, most of us tend to put ourselves at the center of our, the narrative of our lives. But most of us understand our purpose in our life to be about us, whether it be that we've got a set of goals, a set of achievements that we're going after, a set of things we want to do by a certain age, whether it's just that we want to be happy, be successful. All these sort of goals really put us at the center of our lives. And actually, this passage is subtly challenging that very directly. It said, all things were created through him and for him. All things, including you, were created for him. What does this mean? Well, at one level, it simply means that your life is not your own. Actually, you don't exist for your own purpose, or rather, you don't determine your own purpose. Actually, you have to look to Christ for your purpose. But another at another level, I think what it's saying is that your, your life, you were created to point to him, to reflect him, to glorify him. That when you understand Christ's majesty and his glory... When you understand just how worthy of our worship he is, actually, you're, you understand that your life is meant to be about pointing to him, meant to be about reflecting him. What does this actually mean? What does it look like? Well, in Genesis 1, uh, man and woman are created and they're described as the image of God. They're called to subdue the earth, to work in the earth. Actually, one commentator describes it as like they're vice regents, having authority over the earth in God's name. That human beings are almost... Uh, created to, to rule the earth under God, in his image. So the, to be the image of God is to reflect God, to point to God. And in fact, when Christ is described as the visible image of the invisible God, actually what he's saying is Christ alone fulfills this command that was intended for humanity better than any human has ever done. Actually, that Christ is the ultimate image of God, but we too were called to be, the, to be images of God, to reflect and point to God. I think it's like, imagine a mirror, you know, one of those mirrors that you might, if you ever construct a periscope, the first mirror in a periscope is 45 degrees. A little math lesson is 45 degrees angle for you. Um, and, and what I want to suggest to you is the Christian life is a little bit like being a mirror that is pointing to God, but ultimately reflecting God to all the people around you. So we're pointing to God, but reflecting God to everyone else. Now that might sound a bit technical, but what I'm really arguing is that actually as you go about your life, you're pointing, you're glorifying God, or you can rather. As you love your colleague, as you, as maybe, maybe your colleague scoffs at you, thinks you're an idiot for being a Christian. Actually, as you love them, as you seek to, to demonstrate Christ's love to them, you're modeling Christ to them. When you care for your housemate when they're sick, you're mo modeling Christ's mercy to them. When you challenge your Christian friend and say, look, are you sure that's following Christ? Actually, you're modeling something of Christ's love and rebuke to us. So actually, all the, all the way through our lives, there are ways that we can model Christ, the ways we can image Christ, even when we work. Even when we're at our desk, at our, our computer, working away, actually we're working in the image of the, one, of the God who created. 
Actually, if we do it with a worshipful attitude, if we do it with an attitude that seeks to glorify God and not ourselves, actually, even our work itself is in the image of God, that we are, we are playing the part that we've been given to point to God. And really, I think when we understand the majesty and the worth of Christ, then we can see that he demands that kind of worship. Now, of course, this is a huge challenge to our pride. We want to be at the center of the story. We want people to glorify us. It's almost like we turn the mirror in on, our, in on ourselves and we're looking at it. We're, we're kind of focused on that. We're not, we're not focused on being a mirror that points to God. We'd rather that the attention is on us. Um, one time a friend of mine had a, a prophetic word to me, for me that he thought um, God had spoken. He described it like this. When you came to faith, you, um, it was like you longed to be in a stadium of people who were all chanting, chanting Moses, Moses, Moses. And, uh, and then he said, actually, as you... Um, my surname is Moses, in case that's not clear. Um, <laughs> no, you're right, probably, in this context, it might be a bit confusing. So, <laughs> I longed my life to be a, a stadium of people of, uh, chanting my name. And, and it's, okay, maybe not directly, but yeah, I could, I could, that was true. Um, and then actually, as time went on, say actually your life will become um, about a stadium of people chanting Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Actually, that we, li- we start off wanting our own glory, but actually as we go on in Christ, God changes our hearts that actually we desire the glory of Christ. Actually, what this says is that there's a scandal, a tragedy of a life lived without God. Imagine your very purpose, your very reason for your existence was to point to God. But then you lived with no reference to him and you ignored him completely. It's a bit like if there was a statue you know, in Parliament Square, there's a statue of Churchill. But the statue bore no resemblance to Churchill. You say, well, the statue is worthless. There's no point in its existence. You might as well throw it away. You had a replica figurine, and that didn't represent who it was replicating. So you might as well just throw it in the bin. So there's, it's almost saying, actually, that there's such a tragedy, such a wrongness about a life that is lived without reference to God, because that's, you were made to point to him. But when we hear this, um, this calling to reflect and point to God, when we hear this calling to, to worship God, when we hear this calling to make Christ the ultimate authority of our lives... When we hear the, the response that this image that Paul's painting for us demands of us, many of us look at our lives and say, well, that's not really what my life looks like. But we look at it and think, wow, I'm so, I fall so short of the, the reality that this image demands. Because actually we want our own glory. We want to be the authority of our lives. We want to be the center of our own story. Which is why there's such essential good news at the end of this passage in verse 19 and 20, that Christ has come on a reconciliation mission. It says, For in him all the, fullness was pleased, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, on earth or in heaven, make, making peace by the blood of his cross. Actually, there is something inherent in all of us that um, resists the, the, the response that is required from these verses. Something is so anti-ethical to what so many what so many of us look inside and see inside ourselves. So it's such essential news that Christ has come on this reconciliation mission. That he's come not just to forgive us, but also to change our hearts, to set us on a different direction. That we're no longer pointing to ourselves. We're no longer got the mirror pointed inwards. Actually, to turn the mirror around and to make us people who point to God, who are eager to do what is good, eager to to take His authority on eager to to worship him in all his glory. 
And actually, as Christians, we need to be encouraged that the one day, at the end of time, when we see Christ, that this will be true of us. That actually we'll see his glory all the more. That, we'll be, that actually we, our lives will be about this worship that Paul um, that, that is the natural response to the picture that Paul gives us. But there's also a response that you can make to this passage. There's also a response that this requires of us. If you're not a Christian, if you recognize that your life is fundamentally at odds with the picture of reality that Paul is describing here, then actually there's a call to turn around, to make a fundamental change in direction, to choose to repent of not worshiping and glorifying him, to thank him for his forgiveness on the cross, and instead to choose to submit, to make him the authority of your life. But if you're a Christian, there's also a response here. That actually many of us know that we're not worshiping, that we're not recognizing his authority. And we too have an opportunity to repent, to choose to submit, to ask the Lord to change our hearts in the full assurance that we have been reconciled, that the debt has been paid, and that we are on a transformation journey to our dying day. That one day we will recognize his majesty, we will recognize his glory, and that we will gripped, our hearts will be gripped as they truly should be by this picture. But we can still choose to repent and submit to this picture today. We can still choose to see Christ in all his glory.